God tells us, his work is done not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Samuel Chadwick had a great ministry, Methodist ministry in Leeds, that he was principal of Cliff College here in Derbyshire. Samuel Chadwick said, the world will never believe in a religion, he meant Christianity, a religion in which there is no supernatural power. A rationalized faith, a socialized church, and a moralized gospel may gain applause, but they awaken no conviction and win no converts. We need the power of God. We know, don't we, that without Pentecost, without the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the gospel would actually have got no further than Jerusalem. God's power. You shall receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and so on. Now we know, don't we, and are aware of our great need in these challenging days. We know our utter weakness in the face of this immense challenge which we're facing in our modern, secular, and increasingly hostile uh, culture against the things of God. So supremely, we know that we need the power of God. We're aware of what God has done in the past through the working of His Spirit. The huge influence that the gospel has had on our nation over hundreds of years, establishing a Christian culture and a foundation, a foundation for our national life for hundreds of years. We know something of what God has done in revival and building His church. We're living in very challenging days, aren't we, friends? So where do we go from here? Naturally, you're focusing on a, a new minister coming, a new ministry, a new day in the life of the church. And that's full of possibility and full of prospect, isn't it? But he isn't a miracle worker. Ministers aren't. They're part of the family of God. Where do we go from here? Where will you go together from here? Well, friends, there's only one place we must go. We must go to God. We must go to God, and we must go to God in earnest prayer. In prayer, we express our weakness, we express our complete dependence upon God. Prayerlessness is arrogance, isn't it? Prayerlessness is basically saying, well, okay, look, we can manage pretty well without you. But in prayer, we draw close to God in clear dependence upon Him. As we spend time at the throne of grace, God is able to draw near to us. He's able to infuse us with spiritual life and energy. Then we become more God-aware, more God-centered, more God-glorifying, and equipped for the work He wants us to do. In prayer, we, we catch God's heart. We catch God's vision for the gospel. God shared His heart of compassion, which moved Him to come and, and to save His people, even embracing the pain and the sacrifice of the cross. All of this in order to rescue his, a people for Himself, a people who were lost, a people who were hell-bent and hell-bound. Years ago, when I was minister at Pontifact, I remember one time we prayed that God would show us the lost, those who are not Christians, show us the lost through His eyes. The Lord would help us to, to see those who are not Christians, the, light, the, the, the lost, with His loving compassion, and to feel something of their lostness and their emptiness, their barrenness and their brokenness, and the prospect of an eternity without Christ. 
And we prayed that earnestly. And after, after that, there were times when people were deeply moved, deeply moved, seeing children coming out of school at half past three and thinking, how many of those children, if any, know anything of Christ? Seeing crowds in a supermarket. And, and how many of you know anything of Christ? They've got eternal souls. They're on a broad road to destruction. Times people were moved to tears, just faced with the reality of people around us lost. In prayer, then we show God, don't we? and in each other, which is important, we show that, that we are in earnest. We do mean business. No matter what the cost, we're serious Christians. Casual or temporary or token prayer lacks that seriousness and reality, doesn't it? It's unlikely that God will take such half-hearted prayer serious. Indeed, it's unlikely that we would be able to sustain it anyway. Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher of a former day in London, Spurgeon was concerned, he said, to maintain his prayer meetings at blood heat. Now, we don't hear much about that today, do we? That's the way he expressed it. He was concerned to maintain his prayer meetings at blood heat. And he was worried if, if that was lost or diminished in any way. So in prayer, you see, we're not seeking to change God, are we? But rather we're seeking that He will change us. And that He will bring us into line with His divine purposes, His divine will. And that He will equip us for whatever He wants us to be and whatever He wants us to do. And that's important, isn't it? We're not trying to change God, but rather that God will change us. That's the heart, isn't it, of really what prayer is about. A favorite illustration, which most of you will have heard before, but it, it stands repeating. Picture a little boat, a little rowing boat, in a harbor, in a big harbor, with a rope attached to a huge harbor wall. There's a huge harbor wall, and you're in this little rowing boat, a long way from the wall, but there's a rope attached from you where you're on your little boat, attached to the harbor wall. How are you going to get to the harbor wall? How are you going to get to dry land? Well, you get hold of that rope that is you're in the little boat, you get hold of that little that rope that's attached to the harbor and you pull on it. And as you pull on it, what happens? Well, the harbor wall doesn't move. It's you that's moving towards the harbor wall. But it appears as if actually you're pulling the harbor wall towards you. And friends, when we're praying, it can appear that actually we're trying to pull God towards our way of thinking, the way we think things should be done. When, of course, as we pray, it's God who actually is pulling us closer to himself, who's changing us, who's infusing us with spiritual grace and spiritual energy. In prayer, God can't be manipulated. He has his sovereign plan. He has his sovereign purpose. He has his perfect timing as well. And he knows best. And therefore, we have no wish, have we? We've no wish to change God's will. Only rather that God's will might be done as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. As we, a moment ago when we, we read this passage in Luke 11. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want your will. But we're serious about it. As the Lord Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. That's the heart of all prayer, true prayer, isn't it? So in prayer, God is changing us primarily and bringing us to a place where we can become both willing and spiritually equipped and able to fulfill his purposes, whatever that may be. 
So by changing us, God is opening a door so that He can work as He wishes. So things do change when Christians pray. We often say rather casually and not theologically accurate, but we often say, don't we, prayer changes things. Well, things do change when Christians pray, but not because our prayers change God, but because God works through us, opens doors for us to serve Him so that we can be involved in His plans and in His saving purposes. Now then, friends, we know that in prayer, there are many elements. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, petition, intercession, and so on. All important, all there within the Scriptures. But you know, according to Scripture, God particularly wants us to ask. And this is really spelled out by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. He exhorts us, ask, literally keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks and keeps asking receives. Everyone who seeks and keeps seeking finds. And to him who knocks and keeps knocking, the door will be opened. And he illustrates this powerfully, doesn't he? With the parable of the friend at midnight. There's a man who goes knocking on his neighbor's door. He needs something. It needs it now. It's urgent. It's important. And Jesus says, though he, he has every reason to be put off by the man inside, he refuses to leave. He continues to knock on the door until he gets what he receives. Jesus is teaching us about prayer. The context is quite unmistakable. But I also ask that the uh, passage in Luke 18 should be read because I think that's, if anything, is even more direct, isn't it? And more spelled out. Jesus told his parable to show that they should pray, always pray and not give up. In certain towns, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, and there was this widow in the town who kept coming to him, kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, a hard, crusty old judge, an unfeeling, uncaring, hard old judge, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me. I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Now, <laughs> to be honest, if, if we didn't know this was in the Bible, we'd say this is almost blasphemous. Jesus is going about as far as he can, isn't he? In saying, look, whatever, however <laughs> unlikely it seems that you're going to get an answer, you must persevere. And he goes on to say, of course, the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. This woman's going to wear me out. She's not going to go away. I have no alternative. She's going to drive me around the bend. I've got to give her what she wants. Now, listen, friends. <laughs> Jesus isn't telling us that God is a hard, unfeeling judge. Of course he is, and he's a loving father. A loving father. We have that earlier in the passage in, in Luke 11. So the point is very, very clear and unmistakable. The Lord wants us to show that we mean business, to be persistent, to persevere. Importunity, the old, the old authorized version word, isn't it? And of course, you think about uh, in Matthew 15, 21, the, the Canaanite woman. Uh, she persevered in arguing her case for her sick child. Got into conversation, discussion, almost argument with the Lord Jesus about 
crumbs for little dogs under the table, you remember. And there's this interaction between this woman and the Lord Jesus. He teases out her faith, and it's lovely, it's lovely. Teases out her faith, and she grows in confidence, determined to have the Lord's blessing, and the Lord so pleased to heal her daughter. It's the same persistence. And then, of course, you think of the blind man calling out uh, to the Lord Jesus. And those around the Lord Jesus saying, oh, be quiet. He's far too busy to bother with you. And we're told that they cried all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on us. They wouldn't be quiet. Now, friends, it's impossible to misunderstand what the Lord is teaching us here. He's teaching us God looks for earnest, persistent, persevering prayer. He wants to see that we mean business. He wants to see that we really care that we share something of his heart and his compassion. And Jesus concludes his teaching on prayer in Luke 11 with some more powerful illustrations and with his glorious promise, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? No, friends, this is what we really need. This is what we desperately long for and what we must ask for. As with the disciples, as with the early church, so today, we need God's equipping to do God's work, don't we? We need God's equipping to do God's work. We always do. We always have done as Christians. But in these days, these challenging days, we most definitely need God's equipping to do God's work. We need the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. His work is done not by might, not by human power, but by my Spirit says the Lord. Yes, asking is vital, absolutely vital. But the Bible also strongly emphasizes praying, asking, together. Together. This is what we see in the early church, as recorded by Luke in Acts. I'm going to move very quickly. Don't turn to your Bibles. I'm going to look very, move very quickly through to illustrate this from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples were in the upper room, were told, all together devoting themselves to prayer. And that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. As they were praying together, devoting themselves to prayer, calling upon the Lord. Acts chapter 2, the gathered church were told, devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. They continued praying together, devoted to praying together. The church was growing. We read of 3,000, then 5,000 people saved daily, even a large number of priests being saved. Incredible. Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John, having uh, been imprisoned because of their preaching of the gospel, they were released. They come together with the believers. They all, we read, they all lifted their voices together in prayer, and the place where they were meeting was shaken. The very building was shaken, and they were again filled with the Holy Spirit while they were praying together. God did something quite remarkable and sent them out to continue preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 12, after Peter again was arrested this time with the intention of putting him to death, earnest prayer was made for him by the church, we read. And when he was released, he found the church gathered and praying together for his release. Remember that. The servant girl, Rhoda, could hardly believe it. And, uh, well, there's, there's a, a humorous element there. They were praying for his release, and yet she couldn't believe <coughs> but he was wonderfully released. Acts chapter 13, it was in a prayer meeting in Antioch, wasn't it? That The Lord spoke into that meeting and said, set aside Paul and Barnabas for missionary service. The worldwide missionary movement began when Christians were praying together in a prayer meeting. And God spoke and launched the worldwide missionary movement 
in Acts chapter 14, after the first missionary journey uh, of Paul and Barnabas, they returned after churches had been established, but they needed to appoint leadership. And it's as they were praying together in Acts chapter 14 that they were able to appoint leaders, the leaders of God's choice. Friend, in the book of Acts, we see consistently that the Holy Spirit came upon the early church as they were praying together. Now, Yorkshire, as I've worked in Yorkshire for most of my ministry, and I come from the West Country of Cornwall, those are the strongholds, weren't they? Yorkshire and Cornwall of Methodism, but I'm sure Derbyshire too was very much, indeed the whole country really was greatly affected by Methodism. It was a powerful spiritual force which changed this country. The powerhouse was prayer and the prayer meeting, calling upon God together to the Methodists, just like the disciples in Acts. Prayer was serious work and serious warfare. It was the same with the Baptists. I come from a congregational background. Our Bible-believing evangelical forefathers, prayer, prayer was so, so important and so central. They understood that the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. The devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They're dead in trespasses and sins. Unbelievers are spiritually impotent. As I was before I was converted, as you were before you were converted. And the reason that there are people around this estate aren't here this morning in this church. The reason they're not believers is not that because they're particularly stubborn or particularly unpleasant or have particularly difficult or awkward personalities. That's not the reason why they're not here this morning as believers. The reason they're not here is because the devil has blinded their eyes and their minds they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They can't. They're blind. They're dead. As we were before we were Christians. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, friend, you may be a lovely person. But has the Lord opened your eyes? Has he opened your heart to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Until he does, you're spiritually unable to see. You're spiritually not alive. Now that's serious. If people are blind and spiritually dead and unable to see and unable to believe, that's a big enough problem for us to face, I think. But listen, that's not the whole story, is it? Today, not only is that true, of course, as the Bible tells us, but people are actually conditioned. They're actually educated. They're actually brainwashed against the gospel. This is what is happening in our schools and universities and through the media. In simple terms, it's, it, it's basically a, a national brainwashing that's going on against our Christian history and heritage and all that we've been privileged uh, to have as a foundation for our nation for hundreds of years. There's a conscious, deliberate attempt to airbrush this out of our national life and to persuade the younger generation that none of this is true and it's no longer relevant to our lives. So not only are people dead in trespass and sin and unable to believe, but they're conditioned against the very thing that can help them. I was preaching in, in West Yorkshire recently, and someone came to me afterwards and said, oh, I asked a friend, a colleague, asked a, a colleague uh, at work, what would it take for you to become a Christian? What would it take for you to become a Christian like me? The man replied, an explosion in the brain. 
an explosion in the brain. Becoming a Christian is just, just not on the radar. It's not that they think, oh, I don't want to, I want to, <laughs> I don't want to believe that nonsense. I don't want to. It's not even on the radar. You see, comfortable formal Christianity is not going to convert people like that. And we're surrounded and we rub shoulders every day with people like that, don't we? Prayer is going into battle for the souls of men and women and boys and girls around us to see evil overthrown and to see these prisons because that's what they are. They're prisoners released. Go back to Samuel Chadwick again, the principal of Cliff College. In his wonderful little book on prayers, he says there's work, there's, there's effort, there's persistence, there's warfare in prayer. Many years, I, I think Chris Kelly too, was able to go to, I think Chris came with us to uh, Wales, the Evangelical Movement of Wales Ministers Conference at, at Bala in North Wales, chaired for many years by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, minister at Westminster Chapel. But by the time I went, uh, I think he finished the year before, he was elderly at the end of his life. But this wonderful prayer made this conference for, of ministers in Wales 80 to 100 ministers. And if you've ever been in a prayer meeting with 100 Welsh ministers, believe you me, it's something. You're on the borders of heaven. It's quite something. But on this occasion, Dr. Lloyd-Jones was chairing this prayer meeting. And he stopped the prayer meeting. Gentlemen, he said, you're praying like men on holiday. You're praying like men on holiday. Now get real. Get real. We're about serious business. I'd love to read in that prayer meeting afterwards. <laughs> Derek Swan, who used to attend those meetings, and whose son, Philip, was another of our assistants after Chris Kelly. Derek Swan said, there's too much of the playground and not enough of the battleground in our praying. Friends, when we come to a prayer meeting, when we pray, we're praying for mighty miracles, aren't we? We're praying for sight for the blind. We're praying for life for the dead. We're praying for heaven instead of hell for sinners. That's what we're praying for. It's as serious and as big as that. Are we praying like men and women and young people on holiday? I do think, friends, it would be helpful. You see, because we're evangelical Bible-believing Christians, we've been, many of us, most of us, involved with prayer meetings for years. It would be good just to stop and just stand back and just have a look and say, well, what are we actually about and how are we going about our praying as we meet together for prayer? What's in our mind when we go to a prayer meeting? Are we going, like Jacob, to wrestle with God for dying souls? Well, are we really going to listen to other people praying and hear about one or two pastoral matters which need prayer? Of course they do. The Bible's very clear. We must pray for each other. At Pontefract, we got around this to some extent and many other churches uh, as well by dividing our prayer meetings. We used to divide the first part. We used to uh, devote to pastoral prayer, people's needs, the sort of thing you're praying for just now, a person who's had a heart attack, unemployment, young folks away at college, and so on and so forth. We, we pray for each other, pastoral prayer. Then we drew a line, a very clear, very, very clear line. And for the rest of the prayer meeting, we called upon God. We called upon God to come and visit us with, with, with the power of His Spirit and come to move among us and come to, to change people's lives. See, if you don't make that division, then you, someone will call upon God like that and then somebody else will come and pray perhaps for something that's 
may be very trivial, and it sort of breaks the spirit. We found we had to make that clear division. Yes, pray for each other, absolutely. But then make sure that much time is given to calling upon God, getting serious with God. The power of God. Job longed, remember, to state, he says, Job 23, verse 4, state my case before God and fill my mouth with arguments. God has generously filled the Bible with promises which we can claim and bring before him. In prayer, we use these promises. That we're singing just now, weren't we, about the promises. Lovely. To use these promises as reasons, as arguments, to reinforce our requests. There's nothing more powerful than praying for what God himself has already promised. As we marshal sound arguments to bring before God, we're gripped by the importance, by the urgency of the matter for which we pray, which increases our desire and longing for an answer. And when we know we're pleading with solid Bible, biblical reasons, we're confident that we're touching the very heart of God, and therefore our faith becomes bolder, and we become more expectant as we call upon God. Richard Sibbs, the old Puritan, said, it's a pitiful thing for Christians to come to God only with bare, naked petitions and have no reason to press God out of his own word, to use God's own word, to press him, as it were, with arguments that God himself has given to us. Stuart Elliot, commenting on the prayer of Daniel, that great prayer in chapter 9 of Daniel, Stuart Elliot says, Daniel came to God with strong arguments and with importunity, he gave God convincing reasons why he should hear him and repeated his requests and reasons with fervor and urgency. This is one of the secrets of those who prevail with God. Spurgeon wrote, when we come to the gate of mercy, forcible arguments are the knocks of the wrapper by which the gate is opened, knocking on the door. He said, the man who uses one argument with God will get more force in using the next. The best prayers I've ever heard in our prayer meetings have been those which have been fullest of argument. I've listened to brethren, brothers, who've come before God feeling the mercy to be really needed and that they must have it. For they first pleaded with God to give it for this reason and then for a second, and then for a third, and then for a fourth, and a fifth, until they've awakened the fervency of the entire assembly, the entire prayer meeting, setting it alight, calling upon God, giving God reasons from, his, from the Bible, from God's own promises as to why God should hear us and why God should answer. It says, that's when the power of God comes into a, a prayer meeting. Now then, friends, why all this effort? Come on, why all this effort? Is our God actually reluctant to hear us? Doesn't he want to answer the prayers of his children? Do we actually have to twist his arm? Is this what the Bible is teaching us? Are we asking God to do things which actually he doesn't want to do? So we have to browbeat him and cajole him against his own will. Is that what we're saying about prayer? Well, of course not. Of course, it's God who's called us to prayer. It's God who's given us the Holy Spirit to help us in our praying. Because we don't know how to pray as we ought, says the Bible. Therefore, he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us and encourage us. 
It's God who's given us a wealth of teaching and encouragement about prayer in the Bible and hundreds of promises to claim as we pray. And Jesus himself is our great example, isn't he, in prayer. The Lord Jesus' personal prayer life, seen in the gospel, is a constant challenge, isn't it, to our prayer life. John 17, that wonderful high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's prayer, we read just now, teaching us to pray. And what's the Lord Jesus doing now? Well, we don't know everything, but we do know this. The Bible tells us, doesn't it? He lives forever to pray for us. He lives forever to intercede for us. He's praying for us. He is our great inspiration for prayer. I think Martin Luther, God is close as anyone, in a simple, memorable way to help us through this. Martin Luther said this. It's worth remembering. It's worth writing down. It's, it's so simple, but it's so profound. Martin Luther said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Now that's really, really helpful and profound. Joseph Hart, the red hymn writer, wrote, prayer was appointed to convey the blessings God designs to give. Prayer was appointed to convey the blessings God designs to give. Prayer is God's appointed means for us to, to receive His gracious blessings. Prayer builds faith. Prayer builds expectancy and a healthy desire for God's kingdom and for God's glory. And it's through prayer that God has clearly chosen to involve us significantly in His great gospel work, even though He could, of course, surely manage without us. This is one of the great, great privileges of being Christians, isn't it? In gospel work, God has taken us as his partners, as his co-workers. He's chosen to incorporate us into his providences so that we can, yes, yes, we can lay hold of his willingness. You see, God's provision and God's providence is not automatic. James reminds us, you have not because you ask not. Prayer or lack of prayer affects the outcome of things. It really does, friends. I'm not sure that we believe this as we ought to believe it today. Prayer isn't just going through the motions. Prayer isn't just mere tokenism. Knowing that, well, God will do what he wants in the end anyway. Of course, we're Bible-believing evangelical Christians, our tradition, our history, the way we, we form our church. Of course, we meet together to pray. That's what Bible-believing Christians do. But of course, our praying doesn't really make that much difference because God's sovereign. He'll do it anyway. It's right that we should pray. It's right that we should ask him. Absolutely. But it isn't going to make much difference because, because God will do it anyway. He's sovereign. Of course he will. Friends, that is totally unbiblical. That prayer is just some sort of formality that we go through. Totally unbiblical. That's pure human reasoning. That's, not, that's a million miles from what God has revealed in the Bible. In Scripture, our praying is God-ordained, it's an essential part of the way he's chosen to work and to bring about his providences. Do you remember the important saying? I think it's Matthew Henry. Again, so helpful, so simple, so helpful. Without God, we cannot. But without us, God will not. So simple. Without God, we cannot. Well, we can't, can we? We're powerless. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. We can't. Without God, we cannot. 
But without us, God will not. And he doesn't, and he isn't. It's humbling, friends, even scary, but it seems God has tied himself, even limited himself, to involving us and working through us. Friends, in the eternal purposes of God and of his kingdom, our prayer and our prayer meetings are that important in praying together. That's how God has chosen to work. And we can't alter that. And in his wisdom, God lovingly chooses when and how he will answer our prayers. Which prayer he will answer just as requested, and which prayer he will answer not as we want, but in better ways as he wants. Which, of course, raises the question quickly of unanswered prayer. Let me just mention in passing, or prayer answered in another way. Remember Elijah, after his great victory on Mount Carmel, and Jezebel threatened his life, and uh, Elijah fell to pieces. So much so he was depressed, and he wanted to die. And he asked the Lord to let him die. It was a serious prayer. And God said no. God said no. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, she said she prayed several times for the wrong husband. A young woman, an attractive young woman, surrounded probably at college by attractive young Christian men, and one after another, oh, I like the look of him. He's a fine young fellow. Lord, I'd love to be married to him. Each time God said, no, no, no. How thankful she was when she met Dr. Billy Graham. God said yes. The Apostle Paul, remember, he asked three times for the thorn in the flesh to be taken from him. Earnestly he prayed. Not just once, he prayed, he wrestled with, he pleaded with God, Lord, take this away. This is unbearable. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said, no. But supremely, of course, friends, the Lord Jesus, Father, Father, take this cup from me in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Take it from me, Father. And the Father said, no. There's no other way. There's no other way for my people to be redeemed but the way of the cross. God answers according to his will. And we've already established what we want is his will. His will. However, friends, we must never think we fathomed all there is to prayer. Far, far from, there's certainly mystery in prayer, isn't there? We cannot plumb the depths of God's knowledge and God's wisdom. The things which are beyond us. Sometimes God appears to ignore us and not answer prayer for great momentous situations. Take the obvious example. Christians all over the country are crying to God about the terrible moral and spiritual state of our country at the moment. It's appalling. Our parents, our grandparents, wouldn't believe the things that are going on and accepted as normal in our country today. And we're crying to God. Christians are crying to God. Lord, turn the tide. Lord, send the wind of the... And at the moment, God is not doing it. We, we can't manipulate it. It's his time. Is the nation under judgment? All these things, Christians, we, 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 we don't know the answer. We have our thoughts and opinions, but ultimately, it's in God's wisdom, isn't it? Great things, momentous things. At the moment, the Lord doesn't answer the way we think he should. And yet, you know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, even quite small things in your life and mine, we talk to the Lord about it and he answers prayer. Doesn't he? He answers prayer. Things you might almost describe as, as almost trivial. 
We talk to the Lord. We, I think the ladies among us are better than the men very often. Uh, I think they're, they're talking to the Lord all the time, aren't they? Um, if we've been Christians, this is part of our life, isn't it? It's now the, the very air we breathe. We talk to the Lord. We see him opening, pray- answering door- uh, opening doors, answering prayer. We have that relationship with the Lord. It's wonderful. Lord, one of the big need, the state of our country, Father. Why do it? It's in God's will. Friends, we haven't got simplistic answers. I'm not suggesting that for a moment this morning. But God does hear. Yes, there's certainly mystery in prayer. We don't have simplistic answers. We don't have cast-iron formula, which guarantees that God will always answer in the way we want. But we can be absolutely sure His timing is perfect. He knows exactly what He's doing for His own glory. We've got to look at that tonight. And then prayer, quickly as we finish. Prayer raises then the spiritual life and power in the church. Prayer unites as we pray together as brothers and sisters. Prayer unites the church with zeal, with vision, with mission. And gives the church a sense of spiritual progress, a sense of direction, a sense of we're going somewhere as a church, a sense of adventure, spiritual adventure, as we pray together with the Lord leading us and encouraging us. There's something wonderfully encouraging and spiritually significant in corporate prayer, where we all share the same earnestness, the same longing, the same passion for God to come in power and to glorify His great name. In the words of Dr. A.W. Tozer, such prayer raises the spiritual voltage, not just of the prayer meetings, but of the whole life of the church. I like that. Such prayer raises the spiritual voltage of the whole church. And when the spiritual voltage of the whole church is raised, precious things are possible. First of all, we're able to make the best of our present situation and opportunities. When the spiritual voltage is raised, we're able to act spiritually and expectantly according to the light we have, according to the measure of God's Spirit that we have, according to the opportunities that we have. You're not a church in revival. You're not a church that's seeing lots of conversions. You're not a church where people are crowding to come in. But you are about the Lord's business. You are active in the Lord's service. You are serious about not only building one another up in the faith, but also reaching out into the community. You have a heart for that. You're working with the children and the young people, older folk. You're doing a lot of, friends, when the spiritual voltage of the church is raised, we're able to make the best of the opportunities that we already have. That is, in itself is significant. And then, of course, when the spiritual voltage is raised, as Christians, we're able to pray with much more faith and much more expectancy. I don't think we're strong at that at the moment. However much we're praying, I'm not sure we're praying with a great deal of faith or expectancy. The days are discouraging, aren't they? But faith is in whatsoever you ask believing, you will receive. The Lord is tied up praying to faith, isn't it? And that's I don't think we're very strong at the moment in that. When the spiritual voltage is raised, we pray with more faith and with more expectancy. And then when we pray when the when uh, the church is raised, the spiritual voltage of the church is raised, unexpected things are likely to happen. Not just in the church, among, but out in the community. When a church is praying, the Lord works and opens doors into the community. Here in the Acts of the Apostles, we mentioned earlier that many priests were converted. I think that's one of the under, most understated verses in Acts. 
Many priests were converted. You just read that through. That's massive. When you think about those priests and who they were and how they hated the Lord Jesus. Many priests were. Prison doors were opened. Earthquakes. Act 4. Act 16. Things happened when Christians were praying. As we saw just now, they were praying. I'll give you one example from Pontifact. We had missions uh, annually, t- twice a year, missions and booklets of testimonies, which went into 19,000 homes uh, each year. And the, the, we li- delivered them on a Sunday afternoon, most of them, because people were more likely to be at home Sunday afternoon, they're more likely to have time to read them. So we d- delivered these booklets. It was like an army with 150 people going out delivering these booklets. And uh, there's a lady in the church, uh, sorry, a lady in the town who had nothing to do with church or Christianity at all, but she had an elderly aunt who was, I think, a Pentecostal Christian. And this old lady was praying for the family. And uh, this young woman, Norma, she had a young husband, young family, three young children. A little boy would have been two or three, I suppose, the youngest. And this praying aunt had sort of got to her and made her think, well, maybe I ought. I've got a young family. Maybe I ought to go to church and see what it's all about. She had no church background. And she actually was praying in her front room, on a settee or or a chair, with her head down, praying, Lord, I I have no idea. I don't know anything about the churches in Pontifrat. I have no idea which church to go to. Would you show me? Would you show me? And as your head was down, praying, a booklet of testimonies inviting to the mission went through the door. Her little son heard the door go, the, the, the letterbox go, ran to the door, picked up this thing that had posted, came and popped it on his mummy's lap. When she finished praying, she opened her eyes, and there was the Lord's answer. Norma's, she came every night to the mission. She was wonderfully converted. Husband converted, became a fine deacon in the church, fine deacon in the church. Daughter converted, married, ma- happily married to a Christian man of a Christian family. Sister converted. She said had 40, 40 members of her family she had in the church under the gospel. Not all converted, but under the, under the gospel. 40 members of the family. That's an amazing woman of prayer, remarkable woman of prayer. Quite exceptional. That happened out in the town. We, had, we didn't know her, we had no contact at all. Friends, when Christians really, really pray, when the, when the spiritual voltage of the church is raised, God does things beyond the church, out in the, touches lives, and then puts us in contact, or people in contact with us. And finally, of course, when the spiritual voltage of the church is raised, we're ready for whatever blessing God chooses to send. We're in his hands. But none of us know when a moment, when a season of refreshing, this young minister coming to your church, he, the Lord might have already mapped out in his providence a season of refreshing, a new time of encouragement and blessing. I want to be ready for that. I want to be in a position where we can reap the benefit of that and honor that and build upon it. Whatever blessing the Lord chooses to send, by his grace, we can be as ready as we can be when the spiritual voltage is raised. Where do we go from here? That's the question we've asked this morning. We must go to God himself, the earnest, persevering, serious prayer. Spurgeon said, because God is the living God, he can answer you. Because God is a loving God, he will answer you. Because God is a covenant-keeping God, He has bound himself to answer you. May God answer.
for his glory.